This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. And so if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. So just go ahead and shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who'd love to run a Bible over to you. God's Word, the Bible says that it is living and active. It speaks and works in our lives. And so we will make sure that everyone here has an opportunity to read God's Word for themselves. And so uh, feel free, if you don't have a Bible, just to take that back as a gift from us to you today. Uh, We're so grateful uh, to have the opportunity to turn our attention to God's Word. As you open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I I wonder who here has ever seen the Christmas special, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Um, It's one of my favorites, getting some hands in the back, one of my favorites. Um, If you're familiar with that movie, and really with Charlie Brown in general, you know that one of the repeated bits is that Charlie Brown has this friend named Lucy, and I use that word friend generously, because she's really more of a bully to Charlie Brown than she is a friend. And one of the things that happens in almost any Charlie Brown movie is that Lucy says to Charlie Brown, hey, Charlie Brown, let me hold the football for you so you can come kick it. And Charlie Brown, over and over and over again, goes to kick the ball, and Lucy, without fail, pulls away the ball, and he falls flat on his face. Growing up, I had an older sister who was exactly like Lucy. Uh, We are the best of friends now, and so God can heal and mend all relationships, but she literally wrote in her journal, life goal, be mean to Jeff. Um, Now, I only knew that because I stole her journal and read it like I wasn't supposed to. So I wasn't exactly an innocent party, um, but let's keep the focus on her. And, um, And this one time she said, hey, Jeff, I learned this really cool new thing. It's called a trust fall. It is so much fun. Let's, let's try it out. And I said, no, thank you. Um, you've duped me one too many times. I'm not going to fall for that again. But then she bribed me and said, hey, I'll give you some of my Halloween candy if you're willing to try this out with me. And so I watched her do it with another uh, one of my siblings. And it looked like it was somewhat safe. And the offer of a Halloween candy to about a 10-year-old is a pretty tempting thing. I mean, you're looking at the risk-reward uh, ratio there. It was definitely worth the risk. And so I say, okay, well, let's do it. And I put my arms out, and I fall back, and of course she lets me fall flat on the back of my head. And then she stands over me and says, I ate all my Halloween candy and ran away. Um, and so I was left without anything. But then my little brother came up, who was probably about three at the time, and he said, try again, I catch you. <laughs> And uh, bless his heart, his, his desire was so sweet, uh, but his ability, somewhat questionable. <laughs> my sister had the ability to catch me, but not the desire. My brother had the desire, but not the ability. And so I should not have trusted either of them. This morning as we come to Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read in verses 14 through 16, which will show us not only can we trust the ability of Jesus, but we can trust the heart of Jesus. Not only can he take care of us, but he wants to take care of us. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were experiencing a lot of persecution for their faith. 
And so they're really going through a crisis of faith. They were in a place of doubting God and considering, should we just leave this whole following Jesus thing and return to our former way of life? And the writer of Hebrews is really making one big argument throughout this book, and it's simply this, don't turn from Jesus, because nothing and no one is better than Jesus. That's the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. It is, Jesus is better. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than all the angels. Chapter 2, Jesus is better than even the great prophet Moses. Chapter 7, verse 19, talks about how Jesus gives us a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 22, talks about how Jesus creates for us a better covenant. Chapter 10, verse 34, says he provides for us a better possession. Hebrews eleven sixteen says he invites us into a better country. Over and over and over again, this book is preaching to us that Jesus is better. And this morning as we come to Hebrews chapter 4, 4, verses 14 through 16, we're going to see how Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better high priest. And that might not mean much to us sitting here in Western society. Uh, high, not many of us have that much of experience with high priests in our culture. But I hope that by the end of our time today, not only will we understand more about what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, my hope is that this rich truth will be like an anchor to our souls that grounds us and protects us no matter how much the winds of life swirl around us. And not only would it anchor our souls, but it would sing to our hearts. Let's turn our attention to God's word, reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's bow our heads and pray that God bless the preaching of his word. I want to encourage you actually to have a time of prayer between you and God and ask God to speak to you through what you're about to hear. And now if you'd be so kind, please pray for me that I'd be strengthened by the Spirit to speak in a way that would be helpful to you and would ultimately be glorifying to the Lord. God, thank you that you are speaking, God. And you want your word to shape our lives. And so, God, I pray now for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written. May he now be given to us and freshly fill our lives as a gift, illuminating your truth to our hearts. Would you give us eyes to see what you want to show us? Would you give us ears to hear what you want to say to us? And would you give us hearts to receive what you want to give us? We pray these things, Lord God, so that our faith might be edified, so that your name might be glorified, and so that your enemy might be horrified. For the glory of Christ, amen. Amen. 
This text, if you notice, has two commands in it. Verse 14 says, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16 says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. To hold fast our confession means to hold on to the Christian faith, the things that Scripture tells us about who God is and what that means for our lives. The people in this letter, as I already said, were being tempted to let go of their confession or to change it or to adapt it or to try to find something else better than it. And so this writer is exhorting them, no, hold fast to what you've come to believe. Don't turn away from it. But not only does he say hold fast, he also says draw near. Trusting God means that we hold fast to our confession of faith. We believe in who God is, but we don't only believe in who God is. We also believe in what God is like. We draw near to him because we believe he's the type of God who wants to help us. Trusting God means knowing who God is and going to God because we believe that he cares about us. Trust is believing and moving, knowing and going, holding fast and drawing near. And so here's what I think these verses are saying to us, if there's one big idea that I hope resonates in our hearts, it is this. We can trust that God has got us because He gets us. We can trust that God has got us. Sometimes life might feel like we're in a free fall. We're going back in a trust fall and no one is catching us. And maybe we even feel like we've hit rock bottom and it hurts. And yet while those feelings are real, the bedrock truth that a Christian can rest in is that God has got us. He's going to keep us. He's going to protect us. He's going to comfort us. He's going to guide us. He's going to lead us. He will never fail us. He's got us. And we can trust that God has got us because he gets us. He is sympathetic to the stuff we go through. Because he's gone through some stuff too. He's a God who gets us. And so we can trust that God has got us because he gets us. I've been told this morning's sermon, Behold our sympathetic king. Behold our sympathetic king. And I want to work our way through this text by looking at two points as we behold our sympathetic king. First, only Jesus can save eternally. Only Jesus can save eternally. Second, only Jesus can sympathize completely. Only he can save eternally, and only he can sympathize completely. First, only Jesus can save eternally. Verse 14 says that we have a great high priest. In Hebrew culture, there was arguably no one more important than their high priest. There were many priests who served in various roles throughout God's temple, but there was only one high priest. The high priest had many responsibilities, but most notably was his responsibility to once a year make atonement for the people's sins in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the innermost part of the temple in Jerusalem, and it was where the manifest presence of God touched 
No person was ever allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies because God is too holy for sinful people to draw near. And so there was a large curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. But once a year, the high priest would pass through that curtain and take the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkle them on the mercy seat of God. Blood was needed because the justice our wrongs require from God is death. God gives us life to live for Him. And so His justice is that when we use the life that He gave us to live for Him, to instead live in ways that do not honor Him, His justice requires that He take back the life that He gave. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the judgment of sin for the wrong things that we do, the judgment of sin is death. But in God's mercy, He would accept the life of something else to pay for the life of these people's sins. And so the high priest would offer the blood sacrifices and then he would intercede on behalf of the people. He would pray on their behalf for their sins to be atoned for. To atone for means to make up for or to pay the reparations of. And so this day was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And it was, and it is, the most holy day on the Jewish calendar although modern Jews don't sacrifice blood sacrifices anymore. But here the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is like that high priest, but he is so much better. For Jesus has not just passed through the curtain of the temple into the Holy of Holies. No, it says he has passed through the heavens itself. Jesus has entered into not God's limited manifest presence in one holy place on earth. No, he has entered into the very throne room of God, where the glory of God dwells in such brightness that no sun is needed for the light of the Lord makes it seem as if it's always day. And Jesus enters in, not because he's been elected to be the high priest. No, he enters in because he is, as we see in verse 14, the son of God. We got into this last week as we talked about the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity is that there is one God but this God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three parts, not three modes of God, not three phases of God, but three distinct persons, and yet only one true essence, only one true God. And this idea of three in one, it just blows our circuits. There's no analogy that can fully capture it in our human experience. It is beyond anything that we could possibly comprehend But that's okay, because aren't some of the most beautiful and profound things in life the things that are beyond what we could possibly comprehend? The mystery of the Trinity is not to be something that we're meant to wrap our minds fully around. It's something that's meant to leave us in awe and wonder at how great and amazing God is. And so Jesus is a better high priest because he passed not just through the curtain into the temple of the Holy of Holies, he passed through the heavens. He is always in the presence of God because indeed he himself is God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so Jesus is a better high priest because he's always in the presence of God. And he brings into that presence the ultimate sacrifice that fully and finally atones for our sin. See, the high priest in ancient times had to keep on doing the Day of Atonement year after year after year because the blood sacrifices could not fully and finally 
ever pay for the sins of the people. And so each sacrifice was only temporary. It only lasted for about a year until it had to be repeated again. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making throughout this whole letter, his argument is that the whole system that God set up in the Old Testament was designed to show that it was temporary and that something better was needed. In my old house, we kept having to replace light bulbs like every six months, which really adds up over time. And so I learned after several years, it took me way longer to figure it out than it should have. But what I learned is that I need better light bulbs. I need light bulbs that could last longer because these temporary Johns just weren't working out that well. And so now we have these LED ones and we haven't had to replace them for several years. They're a lot more expensive, but they've already paid for themselves because I, I'm one and done and it's supposed to last for actually a couple decades. We'll see if that's actually true. Uh, but it's, it's good to see that there's a better bulb out there. Friends, there is a better sacrifice out there. When we see the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament, we're seeing, one, that sin is serious. I mean, all that blood and guts and gore show us that God takes justice seriously. He isn't joking around. All that death is meant to point us to the reality of the seriousness of our sin, but it's also meant to point us to the reality that we need a better sacrifice. We need one that does not need to be repeated. We need one that is not temporary. And Jesus is able to offer that sacrifice as he passes through the curtain of heaven because Jesus, he brings the sacrifice of his own blood. He's the high priest who both brings the sacrifice and is the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, draws our attention to this. As it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, the eternal God, gave His eternal life for our sins. And therefore, no more sacrifices are needed because the greatest, most holy, most precious thing in existence, the blood of the Holy Son of God, has been given to atone for our wrongs. And so Jesus is a better high priest, not only because he is directly in the presence of God, but because he brings the sacrifice of atonement and he is himself the sacrifice of atonement. And so friends, here's what this means for us today. If you place your faith in Jesus, if you confess that He is your King, then He also becomes your High Priest. And so what that means is that right now, in this very moment, in the presence of God, when your sins are brought before the Lord, you have one who stands on your behalf. And His blood, as the song we sing says, His blood speaks a better word over the words that describe our failures. His blood speaks a better word. Over the words that describe our shame, His blood speaks a better word. Over the words that describe our sins, His blood speaks a better word. Over the words that describe our deepest regrets, His blood speaks a better word. I don't know what words swirl around in your mind when you think about yourself, but I know that His blood speaks 
a better word. Jesus is the high priest who both gives and is the sacrifice that pays for your wrongs and my wrongs. And so for anyone who puts their faith in Him, His blood speaks over our lives atoned for in full. That's what Christ, our high priest, pronounces over us by His better blood. He pronounces over us atoned for in full. Nothing left to pay. You see, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Oh friends, there they do lose all their guilty stains. And so when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I can look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Friends, this is what it means that God has got us. He gave his blood for us. He laid down his life for us. And so while we go through troubles, Friends, we will get through all troubles because God has got a hold of us. And the final word over our lives will not be that sin and Satan wins, but that they are vanquished by the triumph of God in Christ and the better blood of the new covenant. You can trust Him, friends. He's got you. He's got you. Your finances might be a wreck, but he's got you. Work might be stressing you out, but he's got you. Your body might be breaking down, but he's got you. Someone might be breaking your heart, but he's got you. You might have burdens that you don't even know how to carry but he's got you. You have a high priest who gives and who is the sacrifice you need to have eternal peace with God. You know, this world offers so many different high priests to us, so many things that promise to give our souls peace. You feel stressed, have a drink. You feel overwhelmed, take a vacation. You feel anxious, binge watch some more TV. Friends, nothing else can offer us what the blood of Jesus gives us, being made right with God. Nothing else can offer that, and no one else can offer that. How often we can feel, I just really need this person's love. I just really need their support. I just really need their affirmation. I just really need their encouragement. And listen, maybe getting their love, maybe getting their support, maybe getting their affirmation and encouragement, maybe that actually would be very helpful to you. But they can't be the ones who pay for your sin. They can't be the ones who make you right with God. And they certainly aren't the ones who are able to assure you without fail that they'll never let you go. Friends, there's only one who can perfectly hold us, keep us, and comfort us. There's only one who can give eternal salvation that we can enjoy both now and forever. There's only one who can make the promise that he's got us, and his name is Jesus. Only Jesus can save eternally. And only Jesus can sympathize completely. Our second point this morning, only Jesus can sympathize completely. This text draws our attention not only to what Jesus can do, 
but also why he wants to do it. We can trust that God has got us because he gets us. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, the high priest offered sacrifices on behalf of the people as one of the people. And so in order for Jesus to offer himself as a sacrifice on behalf of us, he had to become one of us. And so hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, came Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. He entered into this world. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He entered this, in this world and became the God-man. Fully God and yet fully man. And in his humanity, he experienced human fragility. He knows our weaknesses. Now, that does not mean that he's had all of our life experiences in the exact same way. Jesus does not know what it means to be a pregnant woman and all the challenges that, that can bring. One time I was about to have a medical procedure and I said, hey doc, can you just level with me? Like how painful is this gonna be? And he said, well, it's probably about equal to the pain of a woman giving birth. Um, and uh, I don't usually correct my doctors, but in this case I felt I had to for the good of humanity. And I said, listen doctor, I'm not sure how long you've been doing this thing, but don't ever tell a man that his pain is equal to that of a woman giving birth. Um, because if you've ever been in the living room, uh, there's no guy who should ever think that he can possibly understand what's going on there. Uh, you just need to be humbled and amazed and very grateful. Um, and so hopefully he doesn't say that anymore. Uh, Jesus did not experience every single thing that is possible in the full range of human experiences, but he does know categorically exactly what it's like to be in pain. He does know categorically exactly what it's like to be weak. He does know categorically exactly what it means to be so, so painfully aware of your own frailty. You might be experiencing tremendous burdens right now, and Jesus might not necessarily know exactly what it's like to experience that particular burden. Oh, but friends, he knows what it means to be burdened. The night before he died, he was so burdened that the gospel writers record he started to sweat drops of blood. The stress he was under burst the capillaries in his face. He might not have experienced what you're going through right now that makes you feel so misunderstood, but he experienced being misunderstood. And not just by his enemies, but by people who said they were his closest friends. He might not have experienced your early childhood trauma. But he experienced the trauma of having to be uprooted from the only home he knew, fleeing to another country as the local king tried to find him and kill him. He might not have experienced what causes you to feel so alone. But Jesus knows what it is to be alone. His adopted father, Joseph, died when he was very young. Jesus knows the pain of growing up without an earthly father who loves you. And when he was on the cross, his heavenly father turned his back on his son. Because God is too pure to look upon sin. And on the cross, Jesus became our sin. And so the only love of the father that Jesus knew in that moment was denied him as he cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus might not know exactly what it is that causes you to feel shame. But his birth was clouded in shame. Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. In that culture, there was nothing more shameful that you could do. We know from Scripture that it was a miracle of a virgin birth. But if you think we're skeptical about that kind of thing now, friends, it was also true back then. And so Jesus was born to the shame of scandal. He knows what it's like to walk past people and have them point and whisper about you behind your back. He might not know the exact temptations to sin that you experience, but he knows how strong the temptation to sin can be. He actually knows the strength of temptation even more than we do because he never gave into it. It's only the one who doesn't give into it that knows the full strength of it. C.S. Lewis draws our attention to that fact very helpfully as he writes, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means only complete realness. Oh friends, Jesus knows what it is to feel the strength of temptation. He knows it in even more profound ways than we do. And so while he might not know exactly experientially the hard things you are going through, he knows exactly experientially what it is to go through the hardest He is, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Which I think we just need to pause for a moment and be amazed at that. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is the holy God that we're talking about. This is the eternal almighty, transcendent, glorious, exalted maker of the heavens and earth. There is no one higher than him, and so there is no one who can get him to do anything that he does not want to do. This exalted God owes nothing to anyone. And yet, in the mystery of his divine will, for reasons known only to himself, he chose in free grace to leave the glory of heaven and to come down to earth, confining his divinity to frail humanity. He chose to become one of us for us. He chose to become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Friends, what a humble, merciful, gracious God he is. Christmas should blow our minds make us lost in wonder. So while sometimes we might feel like no one knows 
what it is like to be us. No one knows the troubles I see. Friends, there is one who knows. God himself knows. And not just knows in the sense that God knows everything because he is all-knowing. No, he knows sympathetically. Sympathy is not merely understanding someone's pain. Sympathy is feeling that pain yourself. So Jesus not only understands that we can go through hard things, he feels those things with us because he knows what it is like to be us because he is the one who became one of us. Hence, he's a God who gets us. And because he gets us, he invites us to draw near to God's throne of grace so that we can find help in our time of need. His blood has changed God's throne of grace from, from a throne of judgment that we should dread into a place where we can come and find mercy. He gets us. And so he invites us not to go through life trying to white-knuckle it and hold on by ourselves, no, he gets us. He knows how weak we are, so he's not expecting us to be stronger than we are. He gets us, and so he invites us to come to him for the help that we so desperately need. He's never like, what's wrong with you? I expect you to handle that by now. He's never like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you just stronger? He's never like, really? You did that kind of sin? I have to pay for that type of thing now? No, in our need... Jesus invites us to come for help in our need because he is our sympathetic high priest. You see, when we go through troubles, Satan wants to compound our pain by making us feel alone and making us feel helpless. No one gets me, and there's nothing that can be done. But Jesus says that's a lie. We are never alone, and we are never helpless. There is one that we can always go to for help. There is one that always has strength for us that we do not have within ourselves. There is one that we can live victorious in even though we feel so defeated often in lives. There is one that we can go to for our needs. We can go to trusting that God has got us. He's not going to let us go. He's not going to turn us away. No, he's got us. And we can trust that he's got us because he gets us. Because he gets us. Let me try to wrap all this up and bring it home by telling you a story. When I was 17 years old, I had my first major surgery for my Crohn's disease. I had an infection that had gone septic, poisoning my bloodstream, and the doctors came in. It's always a scary thing when a lot of doctors all of a sudden out of nowhere are around your bed. And the head surgeon said, we need to move you into emergency surgery right now or this is going to get very bad. One of the most terrifying moments of my life. My mom was with me and she had so much sympathy for me. I think she was actually probably more upset than I was, which I didn't understand until I became a parent and then experienced the unique ways that parents do feel their children's pain. She had so much sympathy for me, but there was nothing she could do for me. She was totally helpless to help. She was with me. She could hold my hand, but she did not have any abilities to take care of my desperate need. The doctor did, but to be honest, his bedside manner was severely lacking. He seemed almost excited to cut into me. He was excited to have another procedure, 
and didn't seem to understand that it was a person that he was talking to. And so I'm like, man, is this guy going to really do his best to take care of me? Because honestly, he doesn't even seem to care about me. Then one of our closest friends, family friends, showed up. She was an anesthesiologist, so she was in surgery rooms all the time. She had a lot of sympathy for me because I'd known her basically my whole life. She had been through very severe health challenges herself, and so she understood experientially what it's like to be in that hospital gurney bed. She gets me. But not only did she have tremendous sympathy for me, not only did she get me, she also had the ability to help. She was able to answer all of my fearful questions. She very quickly called in her surgical team, which was the best team in the region, to come and take care of my surgery. She had both sympathy for me and ability to help me. And those two things came together and made all the difference in that moment as it gave me the peace that I so desperately needed. Friends, Jesus has all the abilities necessary to meet our deepest needs. He alone can save eternally. And he alone can sympathize completely. This is what Christmas shows us. God became one of us so that he could take care of us. The blood of Jesus has turned God's throne of judgment into a throne of grace to which we can always come to for help in our time of need. We can trust that God has got us because he gets us. And so I think this text invites us just to consider where do you feel needy today? What is perhaps bringing you some trouble Maybe you're like, nothing. Life's really good. Praise God for that. Enjoy it while it lasts. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. And so we can go through periods of calm waters. But also storms are always right around the corner. I'm not sure what storm you might find yourself in. Maybe there's trouble in your marriage. Maybe there's trouble with one of your children multiple children. Trouble with your parents. Trouble at school. Trouble at work. Trouble with a friend. Trouble in your health. Trouble in your finances. Friends, in whatever trouble you face, whatever need you have, there is a throne of grace for you to which you can go. Hold fast to your confession. Don't turn from believing in who this God is. And don't just hold fast to your confession. But draw near to him. Trust in believing and it's done. And we can trust that God's got us because he gets us. He is our sympathetic. Let's bow our heads and